You're listening to The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. And not any of this show this week is AI, or is it? Hello and welcome. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Meekin. And we are back. Yes, we're back. Andy is still in a state of recovery, but that's not stopped him getting online and putting another great film file together just for you guys. How are you, Andy? Actually, okay. Still sore and tender, uh, but I'm, I'm, I went for a walk the other day. I'm going to go for a walk today because it looks like it's brightening up. I'm, I'm trying to get back into the swing of things because I'm hoping to return to work next week oh, that's um, good. On, on light duties. Is that ahead of schedule? Uh, well, I was told like take take a minimum of two weeks off and I have been signed off theoretically for up to four weeks but it's one of those sign off notes that if you feel good enough to go back to work and you'll work fine with it then try to do it so I can I can be above the rotor and do back office duties I mean I'm gonna have multiple weeks worth of stuff to catch up on for a start yeah so that's one whole shift taken up there I just want to get back into things and being active again because I think that will help the recovery a lot more I've had enough rest period for the initial stitches, et cetera, to settle and everything to just get to normal. So I have to, have to return at some point, and I do want to return. I love my job. I know you do. <laughs> I got back into work this week. It was a bit of a culture shock. Got back in last week for the A-level results and then back in this week for the GCSE results. And, yeah, it's, it's, it's a weird thing because everybody thinks that you have the summer holidays. In, in teaching, including me before I started doing it, that it's going to be just, you've got six weeks off. You haven't. Yeah. You've got about two and then so much work. And I had, I've had so much work to do uh, because I teach film, a whole brand new slate of movies and some of which I have not seen. So I've got to get my head into that and, and prep lessons for it. And uh, also trying to finish a script as well. So I, the summer's just, just flown by really without little in the way of a apart from the holiday, having much to relax with. So, But this week, I did finally get to see Barbie. And what could you think? I loved it. Isn't it good? Isn't it just so smart as well? It's genuinely hilariously funny, but smart on multiple levels. It works a treat. It works, you're right, on every level. It's not a kid's film. No. Kids can enjoy it because it's bright, it's colourful, it's vibrant, and it's got some craziness in there. But it's not aimed for the kids. No, it's not. And it, uh, there is so much going on. You were right about that final speech. I thought it was uh, phenomenal. Mm. Uh, it, I thought it was inspiring. Beautiful. And I thought, you know, thematically, that's what the film was about. Uh, I like the idea. And I didn't know that a lot of it was shot in the UK. A lot of the studio sets were UK based. Yeah. And sets as well. Actual sets. Yes. Physical sets. It just looks amazing. And it was all built. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, I think it's a great film. I can understand why those of a limited perception uh, were offended by it, because <laughs> they they are they're offended by everything. But I thought I thought the the reasoning, the themes behind it were, were incredibly strong. I thought it was a very witty script. This is what we don't expect from a summer movie, and I think Ooh. in the hands of anyone else, then I don't think it would have succeeded in the way. That it has done, and I think Greta Gerwig has, has just moved into, you know, the, the biggest hit of the summer. Yeah, uh, has just moved from small indie filmmaker into a whole new league. I'd like to see her tackle other other movies where she could imagine her doing Wonder Woman, or imagine her doing Marvels. 
I'd like to see that smartness brought into into other areas. Yeah, Gerwig and Baumbach working together. That that's why I was excited from when it was yeah. announced, because I knew that both of them bring something special, something different, something that you wouldn't expect. And Barbie just shows what what you can deliver if you if you're just given the chance to. It's life affirming. It's it doesn't it doesn't take sides on the men versus women debate. It basically points out the the problems with both sides of the argument. It's a, a beautiful film about finding your own identity. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, and it's smart, it's witty. Uh, Margot Robbie is is a delight all the way through. And Michael Sarah. Yeah, Michael Sarah. You know, <laughs> we don't see much of him these days, and uh, playing two type while playing against type as well. I thought was was really really smart. I just thought it was really smart. It was witty. Yeah. It was. It had a lot to say. Thematically, it was interesting. You know, it it wasn't a million miles away from, say, the Lego Movie. Mm, yeah, same kind of same kind of weird yeah. concepts. It did it with an intelligence. Not to say that the Lego Movie didn't. I think it did, but I thought it was intelligent and I and it was very very layered. So much going on, so much to get, so much to understand. But yeah, I, I had a great time with it, and uh, it's deserved of all its praise and all of its box office. Um, I saw. I saw a post online today on that the dying dead bird app. Oh, um, right, yes. Someone asking what five films should everyone see before you're allowed to become a film critic. And first of all, I was offended by the idea that you can narrow down people's like perceptions on film to five films that you have to see. I think that's a ridiculous concept. Yeah. Because uh, it's, it's just gatekeeping. Anyone can be a film critic. Your top five, your top five films that you've seen might be stuff from the eighties. That makes you an expert on eighties style of filmmaking that you can talk about and you can adapt that to whatever. But then I saw someone else commenting that nothing from this century for sure, and that offended me even more. In a time when we got A twenty four delivering art after art after art, this level of gatekeeping in the critics industry irks me. Uh, understandable. I was tempted to answer the five films you need to see before being a film critic, but then I was like, no, I'm not going to narrow it down. A film critic should watch everything, not just five films. There yes. you go. That's my answer. And you need <laughs> to see a wealth of films. Yeah. So challenge yourself as a film critic. Yeah. The ones that have been answering have basically been answering with very similar kind of films. It's like, oh, well, you know, Citizen Kane has to be in there and Casablanca. It's like, hang on. Surely you should watch a range. None of them have put horrors in there. And yeah. I think horror needs to be explored. It says as much about society as anything else. I've said it a million times on the show. Horror movies are reflective of the society that we live in. Yeah, no one's put anything earlier than Citizen Kane. So we're just going to ignore like Nosferatu. We're going to ignore King Sunshine, Kong. A Tale of Two People. We're going to ignore Wings. We're going to ignore King Kong. It's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Anyway, that, that's just a little rant about like um, the mentality of some of the film Twitter out there who gatekeep in order to be able to say, oh, well, you didn't like these films, so you can't talk about it. Interestingly enough, saying that, and I wasn't going to mention it, but I've noticed there is a Twitter site, and off the top of my head, I can't remember, and I'm not going to repeat it. When we do our challenges, kind of a week later, it always does the same challenges as us. Uh, yes, I spotted this morning someone posted out our question of the week from yeah. last week. And uh, two other accounts also did it over the past week, which I think has stolen all thunder. And they're blue tick accounts. Right. They're the people who are paying for the interaction. I don't even follow them. They pop up in my phone. Yeah, I, I don't follow them. Ticked. But isn't the first time. Yeah. Uh, well, 
a few years ago, there was a, a certain account that I've been, well, he's now hounded out of existence. He's not posted since June. <laughs> um, but he used to literally, the day after I would post that, you know, he used to do the MTOS movie talk on Sunday. Oh, yes. My 10 questions from that would make it into his questions on the Monday. Because he used to post out like three times a day, he'd post out five questions. And literally, word for word, he would copy and paste what I posted. But he's not posted for a couple of months because uh, I think he's maybe got the hint now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's what happens when you're divisive and uh, ignorant. Yes. Which we're not, I'd like to think. Probably a good segue segue into our question of the week, to be honest with you. (laughs) (laughs) So... Our question of the week last week, our social challenge was great monologues. Name a film we yeah. name a film you've seen which has a great monologue, a great piece of dialogue that is thematic to the film, or beautifully acted, or incredibly emotional, or absolutely fantastic piece of writing. What was your favourite monologue? How did we do? We've got some decent responses across the board. A few people put in ones that I had on my shortlist as usual, uh, because great minds think alike. You people out there obviously think on the same wavelength as me. Lindsay's story, obviously the you talking to me from Taxi Driver. Oh yeah, I did put that one on mine. Ellen Burstein's monologue from Requiem for a Dream, when she just wants to get into her red dress, it really gets me. Planes, Trains and Automobiles, the I Want a Car speech. I know it's silly, (laughs) but it always makes me laugh. Yes, it does. And more recently, the America Ferreira speech in Barbie brought it to Yeah, perfect. Ultimate favourite is that we live in a society from Joker. Owen Cooper, Charlie's last letter in the perks of being a wallflower, which he wants to know our thoughts on it if we've seen it. I've not seen it. I've not seen it, but we will watch it on your behalf. Yeah, we'll add it onto the deep dive list because yeah. I've been, I've got it on my watch list. On there's, It's available on one of the services at the moment because I've tagged it into my watch list a few weeks ago. So it is there waiting to be seen. Um, the Batman opening scene, the morning routine from American Psycho, and an obvious one, and this was on my list. The final monologue in Blade Runner. I mean, come on, that's just yes. the winner. Tears in the rain speech. That's a beautiful, beautiful monologue. Al Bestel over on Facebook. The morning routine got echoed again from American Psycho. He then followed that with Scratch That, Tears in the Rain, Blade Runner, or Lasagna from Clerks. Lee Leary, Bill Pullman's speech from Independence Day. Of course. It's a, it's a no-brainer. It's a classic. It's, it, it's such a rousing monologue that in that film... Even the British waited for him to deliver it before they went, let's fight back, because the British didn't do anything until that point. Alex Meakin, what it means to be a woman from Barbie. They've memorised the entire monologue now. Stephen Young, Dead Poet Society is a good shout. Yeah. You suggested via Facebook the USS Indianapolis monologue from Jaws. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, it's just a marvellous story. (laughs) <laughs> shall we say, that just yeah. pulls you in. Um, Stevie Dan, 1969 on Twitter. Another one for Blade Runner, Roy Batty's death scene. Over on Mastodon, Anita Byrne. There's so many, but loved these ones. Again, Barbie, America Ferreira's monologue about being a woman and the expectations society throws at you. Everything Everywhere All at Once, Ki Hu Kwan's monologue to M- Michelle Yeoh. Oh, in yeah, Another Life, I would have liked just doing laundry and taxes with you. And Goodwill Hunting, Robin Williams' monologue to Matt Damon when he talks about his wife who died and all her quirks and flaws and how imperfect relationships can be. Yeah, I mentioned that one. I also mentioned uh, The Great Dictator, Mm. uh, the final closing speech from Charlie Chaplin's first foray into talkies. And boy, what a great and important film that is. Salty Red Popcorn, maybe not exactly a rallying moment, but always had a soft spot for the tale of competitive night swimming from Ethan Hawke in the wonderful film Gattaca. I think I might need to revisit that now just to check out that monologue. Now, after taking the ones that have been said by other people off my shortlist, 
I mean, I'm a Lord of the Rings fan. I'm a I'm a Tolkien nerd. Is it going to be Sam's speech? <laughs> no. Oh, okay. That would have been the obvious answer, but no. Aragorn's hold your ground speech outside the Black Gate of Mordor. Sons of Gondor, of Rohan, my brothers, I see in your eyes the same fear that would take the heart of me. A day may come when courage of men falls. Oh, at that point, I felt like running into the screen, going onto that field and charging through those Black Gates myself. That's how rousing that speech was. Taken, Liam Neeson, a particular set of skills. Yes, iconic. Pulp Fiction. Jules's final speech around what he now believes Ezekiel 2517 to actually mean in Pulp Fiction. That's a great, again, it's, a, it's another story. It's another journey. For me, the people will come speech from Field of Dreams, uh, delivered by James Earl Jones as the character Terence Mann. Mm. Uh, people will come. They'll come to Iowa for reasons they can't even fathom. They'll turn into your driveway, not knowing for sure what they're doing. They'll arrive at your door as innocent as children longing for the past. Beautiful. Beautiful speech. So, great. Thank you for taking part. This week's question is, what are your favourite top three films of the year so far? So that might include your top summer film. But what are the three films? And we're just over halfway now. What's impressed you? What's blown you away? What's left uh, the impression on your mind? What's been this year's classic? Let us know via our social challenge. And Andy, how can we be found across all the so many different social channels there are out there right now? If you pop over to any social media platform, just do a search for Film Filmfiled UK. We'll generally pop up on there. I've even been setting up accounts on <laughs> random social media things that I don't even use yet, just as a placeholder in case it starts to gain popularity hoping to get on blue sky once i get an invite so if anyone's got a spare invite going from there please fire it across to me and you can fire it across to me via email podcast at filmfile.uk i want to get on blue sky i hear that's where the cool kids are hanging out i'm not a cool kid so i've not been invited yet so that's our social challenge for this week but what have we got for you on this week's show well we've got all the news and we've got all the box office We've got a deep dive to tie in with the 25th anniversary, oh my God, I'm so old, release of Stephen Norrington's, and probably actually the first proper Marvel film. We're going to be talking about Blade. So we've got reviews of... The Blackening, which is at cinemas at this point in time. Theatre Camp, which you can catch on its limited release at cinemas. And also, I mentioned last week that I'll bring this one to the table. She Said, which is currently on now tv and sky and i'll be talking about the latest dc movie blue beetle chat gossip neat things but before any of that let's talk about this week's box office and the news has barbie regained its lead over blue beetle is gran turismo racing its place to the number one spot let's find out so in the us this weekend gran turismo raced to the top of the charts taking 17.4 million over its opening weekend that also includes the money that it made on the advanced preview weekend last week barbie retained second place taking another 15.1 million blue beetle in third place with 12.2 million oppenheimer in fourth place another 8.2 million onto its total and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem in fifth place with 7.3 million. In the UK, it's Barbie, which holds the top spot for the sixth week in a row, taking another 1.9 million. Oppenheimer in second place with 1.6 million. Meg to the Trench swims its way into the third place, taking 776,000. Blue Beetle in fourth place with 767,000. And 
and non-film, Andre Ryu's 2023 Maastricht concert still pulls in the crowds whenever they release one of these for its special presentations. 710,000 it took this weekend. At the end of the weekend, obviously the figures were a bit warped this weekend in the US because on Sunday they set, they had their National Cinema Day, which is when you get the discounted tickets on all films. So it probably caused a bit of a mess as to what was at the front runners at the start of the weekend and what finished by the end of it. But whilst Gran Turismo has not had a huge opening, considering it's uh, about a 60 to 80 million budget on that film and it's already done about 50 million worldwide, it's it's not got not got to worry. It is going to profit. It is going to break even and start recouping some of its costs. It's had a slow start in the US, but I think they were like I said when they did it. I think they were definitely wise to hold off the release of that for two weeks to allow it to get the international buzz and word of mouth because the public response to it over the past two weeks from the international market has been much more positive than the critics, right. which has enabled it to land more successfully in the US than I think it would have done. Because the lack of marketing, they can't market with the cast because they're yeah. on strike. So this this has been a successful way to tease it because it's had advanced previews last weekend in the US. So they've been teasing it slowly before it hits what is the biggest market. Smart idea. And it's all essential at this point in time. And we've also got Barbie heading back with an upcoming IMAX release with yes. a post credit sequence. I'm not sure that it needs an IMAX release. But I'm, no. guess, I'm guessing with the lack of material coming to IMAX in the coming weeks, there's an opening there. They might as well. And adding in the extra scene as a little incentive for people to pay that money again and go and experience it. You know what? Why not? Why not indeed? Shall we just go straight on to the latest strike updates? Yeah, so I'm guessing no end in sight for the Hollywood strikes as negotiations between the WGA and AMPTP. Are they at a standstill? Because there were rumours of, of talks taking place. As we reported last week, it was looking quite positive because they'd met like five times over one week and there was a lot of to and froing. However, the Writers Guild last Wednesday said that the AMPTP's latest counteroffer for a new contract is neither nothing nor nearly enough. In a post on their website, the Writers Guild updated with a letter going over the events of the week. According to the WGA negotiating committee in a memo, one of the meetings with the AMPTP turned into a lecture by the AMPTP about how good their single and only counteroffer was. They added, this was a meeting to get us to cave, which is why not 20 minutes after we left the meeting, the AMPTP then publicly released its summary of the proposals. Basically, the studios have gone back to playing hardball and are trying to make the writers out to look like they're being unfair in their demands. Now, how unfair are they in their demands? According to reports and analysts, the proposals that the WGA are putting forwards will result in films having to use all of 0.18% of their takings to go to the writers. 0.18%, how dare they? <laughs> I know, for it's, it's frivolous. It's a pittance of the money that a film would make on average that they're asking for. And yet Bob Iger is personally offended, in his words, that the WGA didn't accept this latest offer. And elsewhere, Netflix CEO Ted Sarandos has expressed his own worry that if they agree to these deals, then that's going to result in writers and actors in other territories also seeking deals. Because how dare people wish to be paid fairly worldwide? I know. What's, what is the world coming to? 
you think you put in all that effort because you know what most of these projects start with a writer yeah and i think that you know Iger and sarandos's and other ceos comments over this whole affair which have been abhorrent at the best of times it just shows how they're so far removed from the actual shop floor so to speak that they don't understand that just because they're earning 60 million a year doesn't mean everyone else is wealthy. Yeah, actually, Andy, just on, on a, a sidebar of that, I think that's the way of the world as it is. Oh, in general, yeah. I think this is across the board. I think we are living in a very interesting time where people are waking up and smelling the coffee. Uh, and, and I'm not going to get too political. I heard something that was a bit of a slap in the face that, that woke me up a little bit. Oh, have I become woke? That'll be the next <laughs> thing I'll be accused of. It's doing any hardship, the poorer are always asked to tighten their belts, but you yeah. never ask the wealthier to give that little bit more. Exactly that. We're not a political show, but we do have our politics. And unfortunately, politics is invading upon the things that we love so much at the moment that it is going to feed in to a lot of the news reports in the in the future months at this rate. Um, now, with the abhorrent statements that have been made by CEOs, it probably comes as no surprise that the Alliance of Motion Pictures and Television Producers has now reportedly hired a major Washington, D.C.-based crisis management firm, the Levinson Group, to assist in its messaging. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This, this story came from THR and The Wrap. The studios and streamers represented by the AMPTP have grown concerned that they've come across in the media as antagonistic, whilst company members and especially their CEOs have found themselves villainized. Yes, they have, because you've been allowing them to do what Trump did for four years and speak their mind and showcase who they really are as people. <laughs> you know, we, we had nothing but praise from, for Bob Iger when he returned to Disney. We've always respected like his approach on things, but our own personal opinions of Bob Iger has so changed over this past couple of yes. months from him actually revealing what his true nature is, and it's, it's not nice. So they're basically getting a PR company to come in to uh, stop them from talking. <laughs> so we know that the strikes have resulted in a freeze basically on major film and tv announcements as well as production uh, yes. so cast and directors and promotions and interviews and several delays are starting to have an effect on release schedules as so i guess the biggest project to talk about that's being pushed back is undoubtedly dune part two yes which uh, the original release date was november the second of this year is now moving to March the 15th, 2024. And remembering, because we talked about this uh, last week, in fact, that they had booked out IMAX cinemas so much so that it was going to affect the run on the Marvels, Mm. which so far are staying put. But I'm guessing if the strike does go on much longer, we'll get to see even more delays. So let's talk about Dune first. Yes, I mean, this came as a surprise to... Pretty much everyone, you know, I've seen reports online, I've seen commenters online, people within the industry who are all very surprised that June moved because it had that six weeks exclusive IMAX engagement, which, as I put it, that kind of real estate doesn't come cheap and they're not going to get six weeks when they open in March just to themselves. So it's it was a shock to see it move. It was kind of hinted that it was going to move, but no one genuinely believed it. They thought that that was the safe bet. The Marvels would be the one to move. Yeah, major shock. I think a lot of this might have come from Legendary, the production company, because they were all, didn't make as much money on the first June film. 
that they would have liked because of uh, Warner's insistence on releasing it on streaming on the same day. And I think they want to make sure that they can properly market it and properly get the campaign trail going and get a proper release of it. March is still a good time for it. Yeah. I think yeah. it'll work. I think it's, a, you know, that that mid to late March is a prime time slot. So I still think it'll do good money. Will it do better or worse? I don't know. It's a risky move. It's a very risky move. We know that Godzilla versus Kong, the new empire, has moved to the 12th of April. The animated adventure, The Lord of the Rings, The War of the Rohirrim, is now to land the 13th of December. Yeah, that's a big shift. It is. Somewhat surprisingly, Warner's is holding firm on its December slots with the Mm -hmm. musical prequel Wonka and the sequel Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom. And the colour purple are likely hoping things are going to resolve by the end of the year. And as we said, the Marvels hasn't, as of yet, shifted. But all that might change by next week's show. With Wonka, Aquaman 2 and the colour purple, I don't think that they'll move at all, simply because over the Christmas period, people will go and watch whatever is on at the cinema. So they're not going to suffer from not having the cast and crew on the red carpets talking about stuff. They will do well enough from just trailers showcasing it because over that season, you can drop any film over that season and people will lap it up because people just want to take families and go and spend time in a screen. I don't think the Marvels will move now because that now means that they can have the IMAX for six weeks. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, like I've said, that kind of real estate doesn't come by very often and they've accidentally stumbled into that kind of real estate. Plus Marvel already has the momentum and you know we're 30 odd films into the series people know what marvel is if you're not got brie larson on the red carpet like talking about the film it's not going to impact anything is it now what we do here since june got moved to march the 15th that would have put it only a week away from disney's snow white hey wait a minute andy before you move on snow white's been (laughs) cancelled Uh, only if you're a right ring incel and you don't pay attention to reviews that came out last year and you just pay attention to a TikTok snippet that takes everything out of context because you get offended when, you know, a female is a lead heroine and doesn't need a Prince Charming to rescue her. And, oh, she's from she's not, another country. She's not white. Don't start me on that kind of rant. I won't. There, but we there's just too must many address, don't there. we? We've got to address that rumours have been yes. swirling that Disney has cancelled its upcoming Snow White remake, blah, 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 blah. Let's set the record straight. Let's do the right thing. They haven't cancelled it. They are still planning to go ahead with it. The same way that they never cancelled The Little Mermaid. Remember when that was getting rumoured as being Oh, yeah, that was going to be scrapped. Like, there was so much negativity. It was going straight to Disney+. Plus. Went to the cinemas, and it did okay. It didn't do great, but it did okay. And the people who saw it generally liked it. The people who didn't see it are the ones who are saying, it's a load of garbage. You've not seen it. Don't comment. Shut up. This is going to be the same with Snow White. And everyone's saying, what, uh, why are they remaking a classic and they're changing the story? It's like, you do realise that the Disney version wasn't the original. Yes. You know, there's, first of all, you've got the Brothers Grimm story, which is so different to the Disney film anyway. Someone tried to argue with me online about that. I'd say, I'm not talking about the books. There was no previous film. There was. There was two other films. And there was a stage production in 1912 that ran for multiple years, which the 1916 film was adapted from. So, you know, Disney wasn't wasn't there first. There's been many adaptations of Snow White over the years and all the hysteria around the current one. Everyone's trying to argue that it's for woke reasons. And, oh, it's trying to be too, oh, she needs a Prince Charming. They shouldn't change the story. 
No one argued like this when Snow White and the Huntsman came out. Yeah. So what is it about this one that is different from Snow White and the Huntsman? What is it about the lead actress that is different? Ask yourself that question. Answers on a postcard. <laughs> Look them up on Google. See if you can find the visual clues to work out why so many people are offended by this version. And it ties into the politics that we keep talking about on why as upsetting us on this show. Uh, but anyway, anyway, I'll leave that for people to work out. But as part of the it's being cancelled rumours, uh, what hasn't helped is Disney suggesting that it might be losing its release date. That rumour came out two days after Dune jumped to March, which would have meant that Dune would have been head-to-head against Snow White. And whilst Barbie and Oppenheimer showed that you can do two different films alongside each other, not everyone's got the courage to do it. And so they're looking at moving it purely because it's going to be a crowded market in March at this rate. I mean, I think they're missing a trick. I think they should move it earlier. Yeah. They should open it the same week as Dune. And they should, you know, the same way as we had Barbenheimer, they should do um, Ice and Fire. Ooh, yeah, yeah, I like that. <laughs> you know, yeah. Let play on the marketing of it because it worked a treat for Oppenheimer and Barbie because some people only intended to see one of them, but double build them as a result. Uh, um, so maybe they will because they've only said that they're moving the, they might be moving the release date. They haven't said where they're going to move it to. We're going to see a lot more shifts over the next few months. We're going to see a load of shifts. Some will be disappointing. Some will probably impact on the film's end profit. Some will probably end up with something dying without a trace that would have done so much better at the other slot. But this is the after effects of that continuous strike. So let's stick with Disney. There are conflicting reports doing the rounds about who has been picked to direct the live-action remake of Tangled. But Sources are claiming that the reliable source is Baz Luhrmann. There's no official announcement. And let's be honest, there's nothing going to be official until the strikes come to an end. But we've heard a lot of rumours that 2010's Tangled is going to be the latest of the live-action Disney movies. None other than Baz Luhrmann is being eyed to helm the project. And it's also where we mentioned that Florence Pugh is in contention to play the lead role. Now, all of this can be taken with huge grains of salt until we get to the stage of the end of the strikes because nothing's going to happen until then but of course like snow white this is a new version a retelling of the rapunzel story and again the key term here it's a retelling remember none of these films are real they are all stories (laughs) they are all (laughs) stories that have been influenced by other stories etc etc but that's what we know i i Personally, I would like to see Baz Luhrmann do Tangled because I think he's got a great visual style. Can't see it personally, but hey, Baz Luhrmann proved me wrong. Yeah, it could be a very interesting approach to a live-action version of a classic tale. I'm not going to say a live-action version of an animated film by Disney because it's a live-action version of a classic tale. It's worth noting that in all comments about this adaptation by Disney, Disney have only been referring it to a Rapunzel adaptation. Yes. They're not calling it Tangled because it's not them adapting the animated film that was an adaptation of Rapunzel. This is them re-adapting Rapunzel, which has been adapted many times before, before Disney got their hands on it. So don't get upset that they're remaking things that Disney made classics. We could go on all day about how Disney basically made versions of other people's films for decades, but people now forget that there was other versions of those stories. But instead, Disney aren't all bad at the moment. I'd just like to quickly point out that Following on from when we spoke about uh, the physical media argument with Disney yes. and none of their Disney Disney Plus stuff was going to physical media, there was that weird thing with a, a steel box edition oh, of WandaVision yeah. that was getting sold without any discs by a third party. Well, 
after last week's reveal that Prey was going to be getting his 4K physical media edition, Walt Disney Company has now confirmed that a number of popular Marvel Studios and Lucasfilm shows are coming to 4K UHD and Blu-ray. The first two seasons of The Mandalorian, the first season of Loki, the entire WandaVision, so you can get that steel book officially <laughs> once that releases. They're all making the jump to disc. They're the first Disney Plus original series to come to Blu-ray and 4K UHD physical media and will come with either collector's edition steelbook packaging, concept art cards, never before seen bonus features, including deleted scenes, gag reels, etc. If they're a success, it will possibly lead to Disney Plus doing more physical releases of the exclusive content. Do you remember last week, Andy? Of course you do. You were there. We <laughs> talked about The Last Voyage of the Demeter, yes. uh, which was supposed to be released this week, has now been pushed back to sometime next year. No official date. Made me think, what has happened to the Salem's Lot remake, which was rescheduled to land April 23rd of this year, but was dropped in favour of Evil Dead Rises, and now is currently without a release date. There have been whisperings of more additional photography for test screenings, and the project has now become one of those. Will it or will it not ever happen? So it now seems the studio is giving up their theatrical release. Now, this is conjecture. None of it is uh, official yet. And eyeing a premiere on the Max streaming service. So what does this mean for the overall quality of the film? Are we going to brace ourselves for another Stephen King turkey like Firestarter? Or is it just one of those films that would work better on a more intimate platform to watch it on? But it seems until we get a proper confirmation, this project is now off the schedules. I'm upset because I really want to see what this version of Salem's Lot does. Well, we've not seen a trailer. We should have seen a trailer. Originally, mm. it was supposed to be scheduled for September the 9th, 2022. So the film seemed to be on track. And then it got pushed to April 23rd, as I said, and dropped Three Old Dead Risers. And now, who knows? Small screen. The studio's indecision certainly seems to give the impression of little faith in the project. More news on that when and if it happens. Now, I've been looking forward to... More, I'm always looking forward to Wes Anderson. But the wonderful story of Henry Sugar, his uh, short film for Netflix, adapted from the Roald Dahl book, has now got a release date. Yes, I thought you'd be excited about this. Wednesday, September the 27th. Mark that date in your diaries. 39-minute short film starring Benedict Cumberbatch as the title character, Ray Fiennes as Roald Dahl, alongside Dev Patel, Sir Ben Kingsley and Richard Ayoade. Anderson said in a recent interview with IndieWire that he's always wanted to adapt to the wonderful story of Henry Sugar and that the Dahl family set it aside specifically for him. In his words, so I had this waiting for me, but I really couldn't figure out the approach. I knew what I liked in the story was the writing of it, Dahl's words, but I couldn't find the answer and then suddenly I did. It's not a feature film. It's like 37 minutes or something. But by the time I was ready to do it, the Dahl family no longer had the rights at all. They'd sold the whole deal to Netflix. Suddenly, in essence, there was nowhere else you could do it since they own it. But beyond it, because it's a 37-minute movie, it was the perfect place to do it because it's not really a movie. You know, they used to do these BBC things called Play for Today, directed by people like Stephen Frears and John Schleisinger yes, they and did. Alan Clark. They were one-hour programmes or even less. I can't even envision something like this. And I love that Anderson finds his influence in Play of the Dead. I feel sorry for all the youngsters who are listening out there, anyone younger than me or Lee, who don't understand what Play for Today um, actually was. It was brilliant. It, it, as, as he says, it gave an opportunity for many feature film directors to have a start. And same with mm. actors. You know, Stephen Frears comes to mind. 
I'm pretty sure that the film Scum started out as a play for today. I might be wrong, but it was it was groundbreaking. It was absolutely absolutely groundbreaking. Brand new talent, brand new directors, brand new writers, actors who went on to much greater things. All had a part in play for today. It was it was brilliant. It, the BBC should be shamed into bringing it back. Um, we need to go from something that really made me happy to something that really, really disappointed me. Uh, it's not the chicken run, Dawn of the Nugget, confirmed for October no. debut of London Film Festival, was it? Because that would be just treasonous, Andy. I'm quite looking forward to Chicken Run, Dawn and... of the Nugget, even though it's not really got many people who were involved in the first in the original back on board with it. But you know what? Who doesn't love a bit of stop motion animation? And it's hard. So it's going to be show- showcased at the BFI London Film Festival, October the 14th, ahead of the global Netflix debut. So so what could it be, Andy? What could it be that has, has, has offended you so much? Is it the fact that Equalizer director Antoine Farc won't rule out de-aging Denzel Washington for a prequel to The Equalizer? Is it that that's upset you, Andy? No, I'd be, fi- I'd be fine with that as long as it's done well, but I don't see why you'd need to do that when Washington's own son is sat right there and you can just cast him. Then I don't know. It <laughs> wouldn't be the fact that Rebel Moon dropped this week, would it? Now, we've been talking and joking about Rebel Moon since it got announced. We've been sarcastically referring to it as Battle Beyond the Stars because it's Battle Beyond the Stars. But we have been saying that we're quite intrigued by it. We like the idea of Zack Snyder showcasing some sci-fi in a world that he crafts himself. And so the trailer landed this week. We were looking forward to it. Let's be honest. We did. We were actually looking forward to it. We were quite looking forward to seeing what we can get. We got a glimpse of what to expect from Zack Snyder's two-part space epic, as well as the release dates for both parts. First part, Rebel Moon, part one, Child of Fire, December the 22nd, and Rebel Moon, part two, The, the Scar Giver, April the 14th next year. And it was the most underwhelmingly bland experience I've had this year. And I watched Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. (laughs) You can see exactly why it got turned down as a Star Wars pitch right from that trailer, as well as why, as we've discovered since, Warner Brothers reportedly turned it down multiple times. Around the time of Man of Steel releasing, he was pitching this to Warner Brothers and they kept turning it down because what I saw on screen was derivative nonsense with that usual washed-out Snyder palette, slow motion, moments in the trailer that kept reminding me of much better films that was clearly lifted from. It opens up, and I thought that it started the Gladiator trailer, because that was a shot from Gladiator, pretty much frame for frame. Yes, it was, the the wheat scene. There's even a Harry Potter moment in there, and it looks like a pretentious Jupiter's ascending. Yeah, that's that's the vibe I got out of it. (laughs) Steals heavily from Star Wars, obviously, because it was originally supposed to be a Star Wars pitch. There's elements of Dune lifted in there. Avatar is clearly ripped off in there. You name it, it rips from everything. Now, I'm not averse to people taking inspiration from other things. I don't frown upon people going, I've taken this from this. But the problem which you get with Snyder is that his fan base are now saying that he's created all these great visions. And they will say that he's the person who everyone else copies, even though he clearly copies everyone else. Yeah. No, we're we're open to... It being a good movie, we're open to it being uh, an interesting take on a on a sci-fi. Did bits of it reminded me? Do you remember Heavy Metal magazine? Mm-hmm. Some of it reminded me a little bit yeah. of Heavy Metal magazine in in some of the design work. It had a visually had a tone which was more similar to Andor than it was to the rest of the Star Wars universe. But they had laser swords in it, which I think once you start getting into laser swords territory, then, you know, you're pretty much saying you're wearing your sci-fi influences quite firmly on your sleeve. Look, 
the, the proof will be in watching the movie. But what I've seen, it did remind me. So this is something that you do. In fact, you were involved in a project of mine, Andy. Yep. You make trailers when you're presenting to a studio, which you do a mashup of clips from lots and lots of different films that you want to say, this represents the film I'm trying to trying to sell to you. So you'll, you know, you'll basically take tons and tons of shots from the genre. It felt a bit like that with the trailer. Yeah. I still don't know what the story is from it. The problem is that a trailer is supposed to tease you. And if you're already on board and quite looking forward to something, this kind of trailer is usually the one to make you go, ooh. Marvel does it great that, you know, their first trailers for any of their upcoming projects is mainly for the fans already to basically sow seeds before they do the he like plot heavy second trailer. But this actually turned me off the film, despite the fact that I was initially looking forward to it. This has made me now mark it quite low down on the radar. The Colour Purple musical is higher on the list over the Christmas period for me now than this is. It just looks like a hugely missed opportunity to do something fresh, something unique. All he's done is he's taken Star Wars and messed up the colour and contrast settings on his TV. I was excited to see Snyder play with his own toys, but this trailer's really turned me off. And then you throw in the fact that there's already the confirmed extended cut with one hour extra. Despite there being absolutely no need for it, Snyder has tried to excuse the reason why he's got the extended cut, even though Netflix never requested him to cut anything down. He could have just released the full-length version. The director's cut is a settling deep dive, which I have notoriously done throughout my career. I don't know how he got into this director's cut thing, but what I will say about it is that for me, the director's cuts have always been something I've had to fight for in the past, and nobody wanted it. It was that bastard child that I was always trying to put together because they felt there was a deeper version. And with Netflix, we shot scenes just for the director's cut. So in that way, it's really a revelation because it gives that second kick in the can for big fans, like a real discovery that they would not otherwise get. I'm really excited about it. So you film things specifically for an extended cut that aren't necessary to the film because the <laughs> plot is already there. So you're just padding it out unnecessarily. I don't get it. I get that he used to have to fight for his director's cuts because studios used to get him to cut things down. I get that aspect. That's where it started from because he doesn't know how to edit his films properly or write a coherent story. To actually go out your way to make two versions of a film because you think that's what you have to do. He's not going to make any more money from it because it's going to Netflix. Yeah. People are going to watch one or the other. You're not going to get twice the revenue from people watching both versions because it's on Netflix. I genuinely don't get it. Staying in the wonderful world of TV sci-fi, Doctor Who season 14's release window may have been revealed in what's turned out to be a deleted post from the BBC. It could be the BBC just got it wrong and since deleted the article. But Doctor Who's future reveals a release window for this year's 60th anniversary special and the show's upcoming 14th season. So we've got three Doctor Who specials which are set to be released later this year with, of course, David Tennant returning uh, to the franchise to play the 14th, or it's going to be the 14th and a half kind of Doctor now. <laughs> and then we get Nachuti Gatwa, hey, who I recognised out of Barbie, will be yes. next to take on the role of the iconic time traveller. But in this now-deleted post from the BBC Culture website, a release window for both Tenet and Gatwa's Doctor Who episodes has seemingly been confirmed, and it seems we don't have to wait that much longer. So yes, we do know that Doctor Who will return in November because that is the 60th anniversary with the Christmas special scheduled, of course, for Christmas because that's how it works. And then season 14 is now reportedly heading our way in spring of 2024. It's kind of how I imagined it to be. So it's not a huge shock. 
Returning showrunner Russell T. Davis recently confirmed that work had now wrapped on season 14 after kicking off last December. And because the BBC can jump straight into season 15 as British actors aren't affected by the SAG after a strike. Um, so we are likely to get the new season for next year. But that's pretty much how Doctor Who normally works. Russell T. Davis, when he was on his last run, it always used to be round about spring that he'd mm. start the seasons. Yeah. So he's just defaulted back to what he used to do. It's Moffat afterwards changed like his structure because he used to remember watching it in the autumn as a kid. And so he moved to the autumn releases for each season. We're just back to back to the old status quo, basically. And I just hope it goes out on Saturdays because I hated it going out on Sundays. Yeah, we don't need it on Sundays. Last bit of quick news. Our flag means death. Season two of that is due to return in October this year. Season one was a bit of a treat. It, it struggled at points. Yeah, overall, liked it rather than loved it. Yeah, I still think there's potential for it to do something great. It just needs to tap into it. Fingers crossed for the second season. And Adult Swim has announced that Rick and Morty's next season is set to return. Ten episodes starting on Sunday, October the 15th. Uh, it'll be available to stream sometime in 2024. With, of course, a whole new cast. With a whole new voice cast. And you get to find out whether you like it or hate it at that point. And uh, sticking with, to some extent, Rick and Morty, Avengers, The Kang Dynasty and Secret Wars have rumoured to ditch their writers from Rick and Morty. Jeff Loveness and Michael Waldron, who were responsible for Ant-Man Quantumania. So maybe that's what they're looking at as a reason to drop them. But of course, at this stage, it is a rumour, so get that salt out. And final bit of news, which um, isn't movie-specific, but it is movie-related. Uh, we've spoken in the past, I believe you brought it as one of the neat things, John Carpenter's anthology yes, album. Did. Well, a follow-up to that 2017 anthology album called Anthology 2, because let's just keep it simple, yeah. is due for release. Uh, Carpenter, who famously did all the scores for a bunch of his own films, takes the music from those past films and modernises them with frequent collaborators Daniel Davis and Cody Carpenter. With the new album, we get newly reworked tracks from many of his films, along with tracks from Halloween 2 and Halloween 3, the more recent entries in the franchise, that he didn't direct, but he produced and did the scores for. A reworking of the Halloween 3 season of The Witch theme, Chariot of Pumpkins, uh, which is already available to listen to on YouTube as a little teaser. And most exciting is that the album will also include three previously unreleased tracks for The Thing, Carpenter ditched his own score for the film after landing the legendary Ennio Morricone to handle it instead. So their inclusion here is quite a big deal. Full track list is available to look at online and it's looking quite good. It's John Carpenter music. I'm, I'm, I'm buying it. I'm in. I am definitely, definitely in. And that, folks, that's the news for this week. You're listening to The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. And if you're a regular listener you'll know that we always ask you, if you haven't done so, to subscribe and leave a like, which begs the question, why haven't you done so? What we also ask you to do is to tell your friends, get on board with the film file and let us expand everything that we are doing. You can get in touch with us on the show via social media platforms. Film File UK is what you want to be searching for. We're on all the primary ones. Uh, that bird app, or, or should I say that X bird app. Former bird app. Facebook, Instagram. Uh, Mastodon, Threads, whatever available wherever you want to find us. Or you can email us directly with any thoughts, suggestions, queries, recommendations. Podcast at filmfile.uk is where you want to send it. And we said it before, if you can get 100 listeners on side to join the Filmfile family, then we will do the show from your house. 
And if you live in Australia or Utah, we'd love to come over and do the show from your house, but you'd have to provide flights and accommodation. What have we got for you left in this show? We've got reviews coming up, but before that, we've got this week's Deep Dive. Dive, dive, dive. So this week's Deep Dive is the 1998 Marvel film and the film that, well, I think it launched the Marvel brand. We're talking about Wesley Snipes in Stephen Norrington's film, Blade. Vampires, they're everywhere. You're one of them, aren't you? No, I'm something else. That's him! Blade is the key. All our strengths, None of our weaknesses. There are worse things out tonight than vampires. Like what? Like me. Based on the Marvel comic superhero of the same name, this started out as the first installment of the Blade franchise. It starred Wesley Snipes as the character Blade, a half-human, half-vampire vampire hunter, up against Stephen Dorff alongside Chris Christopherson and N. Bush Wright in supporting roles. Blade is human with vampire strengths, but not their weaknesses. And he basically is out there to bring down the vampire nation that live under the underworld of modern day America. This film is kickstarting like the modern era of Marvel in such a great way. It's quite light on plot. It's got a simple setup. You've got centuries old vampires who've been ruling both the overworld and the underworld. There's those in the, the vampire council in the hierarchy, but coming up behind them and wanting to change the way that they integrate with humanity is Stephen Dorff's menacing vampire Deacon Frost, who doesn't see why vampires are working alongside humans when they are just food. And so he books against the council and threatens the very existence of humanity as well as the majority of vampires. Whilst at the same time, Blade, the Daywalker, continues his fight to take down any bloodsuckers, but encounters a very personal connection to Deacon Frost along the way. This film not only kick-started the current and ongoing craze for comic book movies, but also reinvented the vampire genre down to Stephen Norrington's audacious opening scene set in a vampire nightclub, which has been referenced so many times, including even in the last season of uh, What We Do in the Shadows. What he brought to the film, as well as incredibly well-staged action pieces, he brought a visual, almost punk sensibility to it. Mm. This film felt fresh, dazzling, and exciting. I saw this film on its first day of release in LA, which is one of the reasons why it's up there with one of my favorite films. In the audience was Billy Idol, sat straight in front of me, which I'll never forget. <laughs> and it rocked my socks, so to speak. It blew me away. Just the visual style and energy in this film that Norrington brought to it. This was the role that Wesley Snipes was born to play. And I think a lot of Wesley Snipes' personality is tied into Blade. It is a fantastic horror with some darkly comic touches to it, which, as I said, has an enormous amount of energy. Rewatching that this, this film this week, because I've rewatched all three of the films, uh, this is very much a film of the late 90s, trench coats and techno mentality. It's cool, it's hip, it's down with the kids, it's vibrant. And it's, it's a bit messy, but it gets by and rides across all the messy aspects because of how cool it's presented. I, I, might just, I might just jump in there, Andy, and just say I think it's raw 
for me rather than messy. Yeah, raw. I think that's a better better way to phrase it. Novington's direction is pretty slick and pretty fitting to the 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 mood of the film, but it is as you've suggested Snipes himself who leads front and center. He's just got charisma, he's got menace, he's got cool all in equal measure. His entrance in the bloodbath scene and the opening, you know, it just pans up from his feet to him just stood with his sword out, ready to like take on a whole army of vampires if necessary. He dominates on the action, showcases that he is a physical actor. He knows martial arts and that benefits the film because it allows Norrington to hold the camera away and let us see what he's choreographed. And the choreography makes it just jaw-dropping great. The effects stand up quite well. Disintegrating vampire skeletons every time one's killed Still a great effect, a lot better than some modern effects are. I don't know what's happened with CGI effects over the years, but something's gone terribly wrong because Blade still looks great, except the final act. Ah, yes. We'll just ignore the final act when it, the CGI seems to have run out of budget. Well, that's, that's what happened. Norrington, I remember talking to somebody who knew Norrington before Blade was released, and he had to reshoot the entire ending of the film because his version wasn't working for the studio, and they wanted that version. So there's probably a big reason why it looks out of place with the rest of the movies, because it was, it was sort of thrown together right at the end. Uh, and this film was going to be considered to be, by the studio, to be a bit of a dud in advance. Now, mm. Marvel is now one of the most recognised powerful names in modern pop culture. This film laid the ground for it. Before Blade, Marvel wasn't so much a force to be reckoned with. The company was in the middle of a, a, a terrible bankruptcy and it looked like it was on the verge of financial ruin. The films that it had produced had done incredibly badly. You know, this was the days of the Roger Corman uh, Fantastic Four. Howard the Duck, the cheap canon versions of Captain America, Punisher, and of course Marvel had been trying to bring its characters to the screen in a live-action way for lots of years. And probably the, the biggest success it had, I would say, arguably, was the Incredible Hulk TV show. Mm. But it just couldn't get a break. DC was doing well with Tim Burton's Batman. Uh, that became a smash hit before Batman and Robin would bring that franchise to an end. So there was talk for some time of Blade with rapper LL Cool J in the role with and with Wesley Snipes uh, being talked about to play Black Panther. So Marvel was in a in a very, very poor place and in 1996 uh, declared bankruptcy. For the project to launch by a hopeful attempt at like tapping into comics, going the option of Blade, which was a very, you had to read a lot of comics to know anything about Blade. So it was a completely unknown aspect would have been seen as a risky venture however that probably benefited in some way yeah, because people didn't realize it was a comic book movie they saw it as an adult rated horror film with action and it relied purely on the casting of snipes and his name at the time being the big draw impact to go let's see what this is and it captured a wave of attention and it is because it's so cool it is because it's so vibrant it just has a vibe to it it does the Matrix before the Matrix, basically. Yeah, it does, actually, yeah. It's got that same kind of aesthetic. That's why it's very much a film that defines the era that it got made in, because loads of films have this kind of feel. And alongside Snipes in front and centre, you've got solid support from Chris Christopherson as Whistler. Whistler, Whistler as a character kind of grounds some of the more ridiculous aspects 
He makes it feel a bit more gritty and real. Very cold, yet curving accomplice to Blade. But then Stephen Dorff, what happened to Stephen Dorff? Uh, he, he didn't do much. I mean, I, I remember him in a Sophia Coppola movie where he was pretty good. Uh, he was very good in the last season of True Detective, but he mm. seems to have gone off. I don't know. He, he, had, he, was, he had so much potential. Um, he, he seems to be posting dodgy things on Twitter at the moment. <laughs> and uh, in this film, this is where he showcases exactly what he can do in a menacing role because he is brilliant as Deacon And plays Cross. it in a different direction, doesn't he? Yeah, at times. And I've said this about all the best villains, is there's got to be times that you can kind of see their point of view. And there's definitely times that you can kind of see his point of view. But he's not a good guy. Let's be clear here. He's trying to track down ancient scrolls in order to decipher them and do a blood ritual to some of the blood gods so they can take control of everything. I don't think he's really thought this one through, because once he's done that and everything's destroyed on the planet, what are you going to do then? Yes. I don't know. <laughs> but he's cool. He's sometimes charming, but he's absolutely lethal and menacing. Like I said, this is a, an inconsistent film. There's aspects of the plot that don't add up. You know, the ancient vampire council have never been able to translate these old scrolls that um, Frost is using computers to decipher. But Whistler sees a scrap of them and manages to read a small chunk of it just like that, because why not? Or there's an underground train fight scene that is really good, except the space next to where the train goes past varies from being like three feet wide to seven feet wide for no reason at all. It's inconsistent, but it's just got a vibe. It's got an energy and it's got the most charismatic lead role from Snipes to hold it all together and make it overlook the failings of the film. So as Andy said, this was a character that was not particularly well known. He hadn't at that stage even had his own comic book, really. He was created by Marv Wolfman and Gene Colan as a supporting character in the great 1970s series, Tomb of Dracula. He wasn't recognisable. He wasn't a Spider-Man. He wasn't a Captain America. Goya, in reinterpreting the character, gave him a samurai-like aesthetic. The film moved forward when New World Pictures bought the rights to Marvel. They originally wanted, as I said before, LL Cool J in the lead role. Cinematographer Ernest Dickerson was originally in the director's chair. Uh, New Line wanted to do a blade as something that was almost a bit of a spoof, and it even one point suggested putting a white actor in the role. And many names were suggested for the role, including Denzel Washington, Lawrence Fishburne, but David Goyer always said the perfect choice for Blade was Wesley Snipes. It's interesting looking back on the release of this film because it cost $45 million to make and it well and truly made profit. It got to $131 million worldwide. It was going to get sequels. But critically, it didn't do very well on release. If you take the trackings from the early ones, it works out on the Rotten Tomatoes scale of 57% of critics actually enjoyed it. It's pretty low rating. A load of critics didn't get what it was, but the public did. The public lapped this up. And Roger Ebert lapped it up, giving it three out of four. He thought it was a film that, that relishes high visual style, uses extreme camera angles, bizarre costumes and sets, exaggerated shadows, confident cutting between long shots and extreme close-ups. He got it. He got what it was supposed to be. He got the energy and the vibe that it was supposed to be. Whilst a lot of other critics were turning the nose up because it was maybe a bit too comic booky. he got that it was supposed to be comic booky. There was... Uh, sequels, Blade 2, directed by Guillermo del Toro, I think is the best out of the sequels. And in some ways, I think is my favourite Blade movie. Yeah. It doesn't quite have the coolness because that was felt so fresh in the first film. But it's got a, a much more structured and deeper plot. And of course, 
Wesley Snipes is, is even more cooler in this film. It's interesting with the second film because when it was in production and they cast the main bad guy of Nomak and it was uh, Luke Goss. Yes, from Bros. Everyone's reaction was like, what? The guy from Bros? This has got to be a mess. But it turns out that, boy, he's amazing. And I think the character of Nomak is a much more interesting villain because he's not necessarily a villain. He's, he's someone who's being manipulated. He's someone whose life's been destroyed by the machinations of his own family. And this is his attempt to get retribution. He absolutely kills in the role, and that pun was intended. The new evolution of the vampires to Reapers is a masterful piece of design work, and slow reveal to get to it, to realise exactly how they feed, is beautifully and masterfully played. The Reapers hunt vampires, which means that Blade should theoretically be on the same side as them. But he's not for very valid reasons, which this film explores. It also explores the uneasy truce that he has to set up with a coven of vampires. It's a solid film and it's got Del Toro's touch all over it. All of his use of like gorgeous scenery, elaborate statues and like weird mysticisms going on. Everything Del Toro does is within this film. I think it's a much better film than the first one. Yes. I mean, as much as I enjoy the first one, I think that this one works from start to finish. It's, it's perfect. It's one of those perfect sequels. That final act of the first film lets down the first film, but the final act of this actually benefits it. Uh, this was the highest grossing of all the Blade series because after that, we got Blade Trinity. Directed this time by scriptwriter David Goya. And I, I use the term directed very, very loosely because I think that's the biggest issue of this. You had the visceral style in the first film and you had del toro's classic monster approach in the second film but in this one you've got a sort of a corny 1970s z movie kind of vibe going off including split screen at some point this is a terrible film and, and i think both andy and, and i agree it only works because ryan reynolds is in it <laughs> and gives it a much needed lift but what what a disappointing third film after after two great classic movies. Gets a lot of stick, but rewatching it this week, I still have some enjoyment of it. The biggest weak element is the casting of Dominic Purcell as Dracula. Dracula, as the vampire that started all of the vampires, the legend, the god of vampires, basically, should be a lot more menacing than this. It comes across as a bad wrestler. Yeah, it, there's no menace to him at all. Goya directed his own story this time and proved very well that he, as a director, he should stick to writing. The action doesn't flow as well as in the previous films. And even some of the witty dialogue exchanges feel stilted because the editing is so poor. They're not cut in a witty, snappy kind of way. There seems to be pauses for laughs after everything that Ryan Reynolds says. And Ryan Reynolds is clearly giving it his witty, charming, riffing best. But none of it's landing because it feels like Goya goes, the, the audience will be laughing at this point, so we don't want to interrupt them. Okay, now move forward. Snipes moaned that he got sidelined um, for the other two main stars, Ryan Reynolds and... Uh, Jessica Biel as Hannibal King and Abby Whistler. And indeed, he is to some degree. But I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because after two films with him in the primary focus and just being him versus everyone else, the third film at least tried to expand out and do something different. It just needed a director and not a writer. Yeah, it did. There were other directors in the mix. And I think that's where they went wrong. Goya himself is very critical about the finished product. He says, I don't think anyone involved in that film had a good experience on that film. Certainly I didn't. I don't think anybody involved with the film is happy with its results. It was a very tortured production. And there were rumours that 
Snipes and Goya weren't even speaking uh, when the film was made. Uh, I think it's a, it's a mess of a film. It's it's basically a carbon copy without any yeah. of the style that made the first two films successful. Uh, there was a TV series which had some interesting ideas. Uh, the least interesting idea in it was uh, was Blade, who was played by an actor who had sticky fingers, had absolutely no charisma, and and was the least interesting aspect of the entire thing. And now, of course, there has been the on and off development of a new Blade movie for Marvel. I had some love for the Blade series. It took its time getting there. But once it got halfway through the season, it suddenly became compelling. But it struggled from the offset because the Sticky Fingers is not, not even a poor man's Wesley Snipes. But it wasn't bad. It just it needed to impact from the start rather than get into episode five, because by that point, everyone had tuned out. Whether we're going to get to see this uh, upcoming MCU Blade film get made eventually, we're still not holding our breath, but we're still going to keep our expectations and hope that it will get made. Because I do think there's a lot of tales that you can tell with Blade, and I'd love to see him return to the MCU in a proper... I don't want an 18 rated. It just needs to be a 15. just needs to be that level of action. We don't want it below a 15 rated film. It needs to still have the blood. It still needs to be pretty much a horror with action. So looking back 25 years of Blade, it started really the current trend of comic book movies. It did it in a fresh and unique way. In the same way that when Marvel first started, it felt fresh and unique. Uh, and if we're going to move forward with Blade, I think that's where we've got to go with that. But 25 years and the film still holds up incredibly well. Andy, where can we find Blade if we want to watch it? All three films are on Prime at this point in time, so uh, pop over there and get them streamed into your eyeballs. We'll be back next week with another Deep Dive. So now it's time for this week's reviews. I'm going to be talking a little bit about Blue Beetle, but before that, Andy's going to talk about... Let's start with... This one is my pick of the week. And if it's on at your cinemas near you, get it watched before it gets taken off because it's not going to do great business, but it's an absolute treat. And that is Theatre Camp. We are now going to announce, as we do every summer, this session's productions. Five, six, seven, eight. We only have three weeks to create a masterpiece. If you drop a line or a note is a little off key, just what does that say about you? These people are really weird. Your tears should come from within, not from some emotional grenade that you smuggled in. Tear sticks are doping for actors. Do you want to be the Lance Armstrong of theater? Theater camp. Joining the pantheon of mockumentaries comes theater camp from Molly Gordon and Nick Lieberman, who co-wrote alongside Noah Galvin and Ben Platt. Focusing on a rundown summer theater camp that is a haven for its awkward budding young actors, and it's even more awkward adults who run the camp, this documentary begins just as camp owner Joan falls into a coma and it covers how her useless son tries to keep the camp alive, facing pressure from mounting costs and a potential buyout by a neighbouring camp. All of this is done to the backdrop of the camp teachers crafting a brand new showcase to play to debut at the end of summer. This is a film that jostles to be considered alongside the greats of the mockumentary genre, such as the works of Christopher Guest, Spinal Tap, Best in Show, for your consideration. And whilst not being quite on par with those pieces, this does sit comfortably just below Guest's output. The film smartly plays everything authentic and straight, allowing the humour to flow naturally, and even sometimes be so subtly inserted that the laugh comes a minute or so later when it dawns on you what just happened. 
This is a film that will certainly stand up to revisits and is likely going to see many humorous moments that slipped by be spotted on second or even third time viewings. It's all directed very well. Gordon and Lieberman capturing the documentary feel well, whilst ensuring that the cast of characters all get a purpose on screen. The cast themselves all bring something to their parts, with Molly Gordon and Ben Platt providing the central heart of the group, Jimmy Tatro's Troy being pretty similar to characters the actor has portrayed elsewhere, but in a good way, and the ever-excellent Ayo Edebiri on hand as someone with no acting or teaching experience who lied on an application to get a job at the camp. The opportunities for comedy are all jumped on beautifully, but the laughs never come at the expense of a great core story. Much like the aforementioned guest-directed mockumentaries, this film remembers to play it as real as possible, to the point that it's almost believable, and just let the comedy come from the situations. This is a great film that is destined to become a cult classic on home release. Theatre Camp is a fresh slice of comedy and drama, and definitely one of the highlights of this year. Yep, kind of fancied that. Really do. Uh, I, I'm a, a, a bit of a sucker for, for mockumentaries, so I'll, I'm going to put that onto the list. What else have we got? I've also seen The Blackening, which hits cinemas this past week. The Blackening. You are a black character in a horror movie. <laughs> Prove that you can stay alive. Let's get some weapons. Chili powder, girl. What I'm finna do, cuz? What black woman got to save everyone all the damn time? The Blackening. Tim Story, he of the pretty decent barbershop films, the almost good Fantastic Four films and the not at all good Ride Along films steps into comedy horror with The Blackening, a film drawn from a short skit from comedy troupe Three Pete, which follows a group of black American friends who rent a cabin in the woods to celebrate Juneteenth, only to find themselves being stalked by a mysterious killer after they interact with a twisted board game. Playing on the tropes of the horror genre, this is a film that so desperately wants to be considered on par with other self-aware horror outputs such as Scream, but is instead comparable with the weak Wayans comedy horror output such as Scary Movie or, even closer in quality, A Haunted House. The concept is fine, and the film does start off well with an opening scene akin to Scream, which sets the potential tone for the rest of the film. That scene sees a couple arrive at the cabin early, who play the game and meet their consequences, and it balances dark humour, horror and the genre's satire very well. Unfortunately, the film then takes a very swift plunge after that opener, and the rest of the film swiftly dissolves into tired cliches, annoying characters, and inane dialogue exchanges that feel more like the random rantings of a wannabe comic at open mic night. Tim's story showcases that horror clearly isn't his thing, and the film unfortunately doesn't lean enough into the horror for the satire to work effectively, and it instead pads it all out with a heavy lean into the comedy dialogue, making it feel more like Barbershop, but without any of the charm that film series had. The end result is a rather effective short skit that is sadly dragged kicking and screaming over 90 minutes, which neither thrills nor amuses as a result. Watch the opening scene and then switch this film off. So I'm going to be talking about Blue Beetle, which has now been out for over a week. And this is, well, it's a fun movie about a lesser-known DC character. Unless you're a real comic geek, you probably don't even recognise Blue Beetle. And you certainly might not recognise this interpretation of the character. I feel like I failed you guys. This wasn't how it was supposed to happen. You're high man. You always land on your feet. Oh, I'm in so much trouble. The universe has sent you a gift. You have to figure out what you're going to do with it. How'd you do that? I have no idea. Target the family. Come to Papa. Nana. No way. See, wait. <laughs>
as played by Solo Marandino, Jamie Reese, a Latinx teenager, suddenly finds himself in possession of an ancient relic of an alien biotechnology known as the Scarab. When the Scarab chooses Jamie to be its symbiotic host, he's bestowed with incredible suit of armor that's capable of extraordinary and unpredictable powers, forever changing his life and his destiny as he becomes the superhero known as Blue Beetle. This is at times both scrappy and a well-thought-out, amusing and poignant film. It has a lot of problems. It's an origin film, which we have now seen so many times, so it takes plenty of screen time to get us to the superhero action. There are elements of it that we have seen so many times before, learning to use your powers, uh, problems using your powers, the special suit not working scenes that we've seen many, many times before. But what we haven't seen before, and what makes this film work really well, is the fact that this film, and I'm going to use the term that we seem to be using a lot over the last couple of years, this is a film about family, and in particular, an immigrant family, a Latinx family. And it's those elements which make it feel fresh and different. Now, I think you could forgive cinema goers for their superhero fatigue. This year, we've had The Flash, we've had Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, and we've had Shazam, Fury of the Gods, failing to match any spectacle. But this offering of what might be DC's extended universe, and maybe the end of DC's extended universe, is different. And that is when the story focuses on, on a believable Latino family whose lively interactions, that's what brings the A-game to this movie. That's what brings something different. Now, we know this film was originally intended to go straight to streaming uh, via HBO Max. So Blue Beetle is kind of front-loaded with all the visual fireworks that you've seen in every other superhero movie. Put that aside, when we get to all the, all the family drama elements, this film comes alive. And that's what makes it unique. The fact that Jamie's parents are a part of what is going on. It's got a, a, a lovely look to it. The CG is impressive, but you know what? CG is always impressive now. There are too many elements of that kind of comedic slapstick quality that, that we've seen too many times. I'm thinking of you, Venom. Um, there are elements from Iron Man. There are elements from Spider-Man. If it had only had the guts to say, let's stick with the pathos and the quieter humor, then I think we'd have got a classic superhero film. It's incredibly likable. First and foremost, it's fun, but it wouldn't be half as much fun if it wasn't for the boisterous dinner table Latino vibe that this film gives. Quick word of note to HBO Max. Think about smaller superhero films. Don't worry about having to put them on the big screen. This would have found a much stronger audience if you'd have stuck to your guns. And it didn't need the ever-increasing budget because what makes this work is the heart of the film. I was interested when this first got announced on the family aspects that was discussed and to hear that that's the core of the film and that's what makes it. That's, that's what makes it distinctive, Andy. Because otherwise, the trailers just showed, showcased it as a poor man's Iron Man. And that's why this film's not done well, because all the qualities it showed in the trailer are, oh, look, he's in armour. Oh, look, he's doing yeah. this. He's learning to use his power. We've taken that from the first Spider-Man movie. Yeah. But it owes a lot to, the, to its warmth of its supporting cast. It's much better 
than the CGI antics and the origin story, which are over familiar. It's the characterization that make this work. It's a shame it's not done better. I think the way that it's been marketed as being the problem. The last film review for this week is one that dropped onto Now TV and Sky a few weeks ago that I briefly mentioned last week and said I'd talk about this week, and that is She Said. Why is sexual harassment so hard to address? We're from the New York Times. I believe you used to work for Harvey Weinstein. Are you scared of him? We all were. He'll have spies watching you now. Do you wish you hadn't signed up for this? Do you? Tell me about the payouts. What payouts, John? I want to speak out on behalf of the women who can't. This is all going to come out. She said. A biographical drama from Maria Schrader based on the book of the same name from reporters Jodie Cantor and Megan Toohey, who were the New York Times journalists who broke the Harvey Weinstein scandal, launching the hashtag MeToo movement. She said joins the realm of strong newsroom-focused drama drawn from real-life events. Carrie Mulligan and Zoe Kazan portray Toohey and Cantor, who... After Cantor gets a tip that actress Rose McGowan was sexually assaulted by Harvey Weinstein, begins investigating and soon finds that others are afraid to come forward with similar stories, with many stars and workers in the industry paid off to stay silent, covering up decades of abuse from the highly regarded producer. As the pair dig deeper, they start to discover how big the issue is, and also the shocking manner in which it was being controlled to remain a secret for so long. With this story being so recent, it's easy to dismiss this just as being a film filled with all the information that we already know. After all, you have to have been hiding in a cave for the last six years to have missed the whole wave of hashtag me too and the reporting around the Weinstein cases. However, whilst there's a lot of uncovering of details widely reported, this film, like other great newsroom dramas before it, focuses on the reporters and how the story they chase impacts on them and their lives and the pressures the newspaper, in this case the New York Post, faces in pursuing the facts. We get to journey with Cantor and Tui as they seek answers, face threats and race to break the story before it leaks out and it's picked up or underplayed by other sources, which makes for a dramatic and sometimes tense 129 minutes of runtime. This is aided by fantastic performances all round, with the cast all on top form, and it places the film amongst its peers such as Spotlight and even All the President's Men quite comfortably. With the setting of this true life story being so fresh, it actually serves well as it's still hugely relevant to the world around us. During the peak of the hashtag MeToo movement, there was a lot of misinformation sown to discredit the facts and manipulate the message, which sadly resulted in many losing focus on what it was all about. This film is a reminder that hashtag MeToo wasn't just a fad of the moment. And by avoiding over-sensationalising the drama, the film serves its purpose well and leaves plenty of food for thought. I, I am going to get around to seeing this. I I saw the documentary, which part of this has been based on, uh, which is shocking. And, and a real wake-up call to, to what was happening in Hollywood. And you know what? It's probably still happening. If not in Hollywood, then in other businesses across the world. But yes, I, I really, really want to see that. So that's what we're talking about this week. What are we going to be talking about over the next week? At cinemas this coming week, Sound of Freedom lands as well as Equalizer 3. I'm interested in that. I'll, I'm, I'm really interested in Equalizer 3. I've enjoyed the Equalizer films. Yeah, they tick the boxes. The, the, they, they are what they are and they do it well. On streaming... Couldn't find a lot that stood out. Netflix has a few things. There's a Swedish drama about a man try, desperately trying to reunite with his daughter called A Day and a Half. He finds out that the best way to do that is he arms up and breaks into the hospital where she works. 
All the films that land on Netflix this coming week, which are worth checking out, Arrival, Fences, and Hacksaw Ridge, and a rom-com that landed in cinemas early this year, Love Again, also land on Netflix. Nowhere else had anything that stood out, except for Paramount Plus has got all of season one of the new Quantum Leap, well worth checking out if you've got Paramount Plus. But I thought this week, because there's not a lot on streaming that I could spot, I want to do a reminder and a shout out to the two free streaming services with ads. There's Freevee and Rakuten, which you can just sign up to and they've got a free option. Now, for those on a tight budget, services that do ad support are well worth checking out. And with Freevee, some of the films that landed on there recently include and are not limited to Scott Pilgrim, Super 8, Get Out, Atomic Blonde, Chicago, The Voices, Fargo, Gone Baby Gone, Capote, Goodwill Hunting, Triangle, Stargate, Wreck, and your favourite film, Yes, Buckaroo Banzai, <laughs> is on there as well. And on Rakuten TV, films such as The Box, The Big Short, Imperium, Hard Candy, and A Bronx Tale are on there at the moment. All worth seeing. Well worth checking yeah. out. Don't just write off these free with ad support services as being pointless because a lot of those films that are listed within there are not available on any other service at this point in time. So well worth checking out. Scott Pilgrim celebrated its 13th birthday this week. Well worth checking out and reminding yourself of how good that film is. It's funny that they don't, they're not even huge commercial breaks. No. When they, when they pop up, they are, are 30, 40 seconds and then you're back into the movie. So you've not even got that time to go, I'll go and make a cup of tea. Um, they are just sort of pop-up adverts that then take you more or less straight back into the movie. They yeah. are There are some pretty good stuff on there. I think that's us done for this week, Andy. We were going to talk about Ahsoka this week, but we're going to hold back as I've not seen the first two episodes yet. So we give us something to talk about. And you know, the way the world is right now, we might not have any news next week, so it'll be worth hanging on. But that's it for this week. And of course, before we go, Let's talk about our neat things. Stuff that we've enjoyed, that we want to share with you, that we've really liked. Andy, what's your neat thing for this week? Now, I love short films. And um, we spoke earlier on in the news about how Play for Today allowed directors a chance to start off and, you know, get a foothold in the industry. And short films are the, another way of doing it. And over my time of rest and relaxation, I've been working through a load of short films as part of my exploration of Oscar-nominated film history. And I stumbled upon the IFI website for short films, the Irish Film Institute's website, ifiarchiveplayer.ie. And on there, they've got a wealth of short films bundled into easy-to-browse easy collections to watch online. I stumbled on it because they've got a, set, a category called the Oscars Collection in which there's some absolute gems in the animated category. Uh, Granny O'Grimm's Sleeping Beauty and Late Afternoon, for example, are two absolute gems. One is hilarious. One is deeply touching and powerful in an emotional way. And in the drama section, there's films such as The Shore and then the 2004 Martin McDonough film, Six Shooter, which showcases what that director would eventually become in such a marvellous short. Short films are often a mixed bag. And yes, there's some short films on the IFI website that don't resonate with you. But the ones that do will always make exploring short films a joy to me. And the Irish Film Institute collection showcases talents of the Emerald Shore in a perfect way. Check out short films, never write them off. There's loads of times when we sat through a feature film and gone, that felt like a short that had been dragged out too much. A lot of them start off as shorts and you'll see with shorts that they have to condense. With a short, you've not got two hours to tell the story. You've got maybe 40 minutes. It keeps it just core 
to the story itself or the emotional aspects. Well worth checking out. Anywhere that you can find short films worth checking out, but the IFI archive player is my neat thing this week. My neat thing is is, is basically your fault because you introduced me to the fantastic The After Party uh, with season <laughs> one. And if it taught us anything, The After Party, is that we all get one shot twice. So the original story, uh, Anique, played by Sam Richardson, uh, turns up an after party and there is a murder. And the concept of the series is it's a murder mystery meets every movie genre imaginable in a kind of a, a Rashomon sort of way. Would that sustain for a second season? Thankfully, the after party season two puts all those concerts to one side because this works fabulously. A new murder mystery, a new cast, a new slate of film genres, and it keeps everything fresh and it keeps everything funny. And it has some even more grandiose stylistic swings than the first season. So it's the same formula as uh, season one. There is a murder, there is the murder of a prominent figure, and this time around it's a Silicon Valley tech genius, Edgar Minnows, played deadpan by Zach Woods, a member from Silicon Valley, who's found dead the morning after his wedding to the enthusiastic antiques dealer, Grace, played by Poppy Lou. And of course, we've got to find out who did it. And that's the joy of this series, because each episode is presented in a stylistic film way. So this time we've had film noir. We've had a, a beautiful episode, which has been a, a Wes Anderson approach to it. It's just, it's not only just laugh out loud funny, it's also the way that you, you get involved with the murder mystery and you also become excited for whatever genre is going to be used because that genre fits the character's point of view. It's a wonderful series. It's on Apple TV+. Plus. If you've not seen season one, I suggest you do so and go straight in to season two because it's well worth it. Great piece of storytelling, lots and lots of laugh, and very, very cine literate. I loved the Wes Anderson-esque It was great, wasn't it? It was so spot on. <laughs> as soon as it starts, I was like, oh my, they're doing a Wes Anderson version. <laughs> so I think it's we've brilliant. only got two episodes. It's been landing weekly, landing every Wednesday. Yeah. And we, are, we have been so on this. I think, as we've said many times, Apple TV is doing some great stuff, which is going to lead me into my neat thing for next week. But that, folks, that's us done. Thank you for sticking around. Thank you for being part of the film file. As we said, let your friends know. And we really want to build the brand for next year. And uh, I'm going to go and crash out now because I am not feeling my best. Yes. This has been a struggle this particular <laughs> week, the way that Andy was struggling in a very, very different way uh, through the previous shows. So uh, I think I'm done for the day now. And um, I'll see you next week, mate. And hopefully you're going to be back to work. Yes, I'm, I'm hoping to go back next week uh see how i get on with me uh daily walks at the moment and uh get myself get myself moving again yeah i mean i've almost caught up on everything i've, I've wiped out netflix i've wiped out prime there's not much else for me to watch at home yeah I've, I've got a, still a thousand dvds to, and blu-rays to bring around mate <laughs> I'll, I'll think of something <laughs> we'll see you all next week but remember you better wake up the world you live in is just a sugar-coated topping there's another world beneath it the real world there's not much AI, but there's a lot of oh, I. <laughs> yeah, there'll be lots of ums. Oh, I, 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 I. Oh, I. <laughs> hey, 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 you're not having a sale. Hi, lad. 
and we all know what path that'll be. <laughs> Three, two, one. Don't Hello, and... <laughs> I know it was interesting. I watched uh, Good Omens uh, and David Tennant doing the worst Scottish accent ever. <laughs> Which for a Scottish actor is impressive for the Scottish yeah. actor to do a bad Scottish accent. Uh, that might actually be his normal accent, but we just don't know yeah. because we've heard him not do a Scottish accent for so long. This is going to be the longest show ever for Lee because he's not well at the moment. And this is going in the outtakes at the end, but I keep interrupting him as we're trying to start. I know. I'll probably make it about 10 minutes in and just doze off. Hello and welcome to The Film File. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Meakin. And we are back. Yes, two weeks on the trot and you've got a regular show. Some kind of record? Well, no, not really, but it's just good to say it to cause a bit of uh, cause a bit of debate right at the front of the beginning. Oh, that's rubbish. <laughs> that's just rubbish. Oh, come on, think. I'll start again. This week's question we want from you is: What top five films do you need to be a film? Oh. <laughs> I, I won't do that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're not going to gatekeep on this show. <laughs> now, as expected, his cult out there got very giddy about how the God is delivering a masterpiece unlike anything seen before. I've seen people denying that it's got any similarity with Star Wars. Seriously, they think that there's nothing Star Wars-esque in here, even though it was a Star Wars <clears throat> Laser swords. I mean... I suppose if we take away the fascist empire, the droids, the spaceships and the sodden laser swords, yeah, it's nothing like Star Wars. And the phrase that they use a lot these days is Zack is cooking. That's fine. But not everyone who cooks is a chef and some people can burn a salad. And he's seriously burnt this salad. I, I guess you'll be editing that bit down. <laughs> that might get trimmed down a slight bit. Or I, or I might tag it on the end as outtakes. That is the news. Bum, bum. Give me the news, all of the news. <laughs> Feed the news in my face. The weekly film show for film geeks by weekly film or <laughs> weekly film geeks. <laughs> uh, what do we do now? Reviews. Reviews. Yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm barely hanging in. So we'll be talking about that next. Oh, I'm going to do that all bit again for you, Andy, in one lump sum because like words not good. <laughs>